Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Now let's read together. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Lord, as we look into your word today, I pray that you would introduce us and allow us to live as part of your grand ambition. That our lives would be rightly pointed in the direction you want us to go. In your name, amen. Well, we're coming toward the end of Jesus' famous sermon on the mount where he's talking to jews specifically his disciples and we've gone through and jesus has addressed everything from taking care of the poor and the needy to money itself to how to pray to fasting as we discussed last week hopefully some of you stood with me and skipped a meal and spent that time with the lord instead uh, i'm not going to ask you to raise your hand that would defeat the purpose uh, if you paid attention last week you'll know why but now we come to Jesus wrapping up and beginning to synthesize everything he's talked about. And he does so by addressing some felt needs. Money, food, clothes, etc. All the things we think we need. In other words, what in this life is driving us? So that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to look at these concepts. But what I want to do to help us get an understanding of where Jesus is going is he brings it all together with one of, in my opinion, the most important verses in all of Scripture, is I want us to think back to when we were a child. If you can remember that long ago or that short of go, you might have said something like this, when I grow up. 
Did you ever say that? Maybe you said it in a different language, but the meaning is the same. When I grow up. So I want to talk to you a little bit about what I was thinking I would be when I grow up. First, long before I discovered the joys of the world's greatest game, tennis, uh, I had fallen in love with America's pastime, and that was called baseball. And I grew up in a, in a part of the world where the New York Yankees and the New York Mets reigned supreme. So when I grew up, I wanted to be that guy, mustache and all. Because one, he had the greatest mustache in all of baseball. Two, his very nickname was Donnie Baseball. That is Don Mattingly, the greatest first baseman to ever play the game. And if you argue with me, you're wrong. Okay, he was amazing. Now he's the manager for the Los Angeles Dodgers and we don't like him anymore. But that's beside the point. He was amazing and I just wanted to be Donnie Baseball. Or there was a catcher for the New York Mets, the other team in New York that I rooted for. And his name was Gary Carter and also had a great mustache. So it was something about mustaches and baseball players. But when I grew up, I thought, I want to be that guy. Well, over time, I realized that I wasn't going to be a great baseball player. I was too little. So I thought I would think about something more practical. And so then I decided, well, I could do this. I wanted to be a rock climber because how cool was that? I was always climbing anyways. I was always getting stuck up in trees and things. And I thought maybe I could do that professionally. There wasn't really such a thing, but I thought that would be pretty cool. And if you look up into the distance, you realize how high off the ground he is because those are mountains off in the distance. And he's just hanging out. And I thought, yeah, that would be exciting and fun. And I'll be honest, I still like to do that. Uh, not that, but I do like to climb when I can. And then I thought, okay, well, there's not a lot of money in rock climbing. There's a lot of danger. So maybe I, at this point, I'm probably nine. And in there, I, I didn't put a picture up because I didn't want to, but in there, there was a short time when I also wanted to be a garbage man because I'd seen a movie called Men at Work with Emilio Estevez and they made garbage men look cool. And then I went out and I rode behind a garbage truck and realized that it is not a cool job. <laughs> but then, then my life was changed dramatically and I knew what I was put on this earth to become. And it was so clear to me. My dad took me to see a movie. I already liked airplanes and he took me to see that movie. He took me to see Top Gun. And I knew that I was made to be a fighter pilot. I was made to fly F-14 Tomcats. And I was made to have a nickname like Maverick. Or Goose wasn't as cool, but he was a cool guy. Or Iceman. And I was going to fly planes. Later on, I discovered how much math was involved in being a fighter pilot. And realized that maybe, again, that wasn't for me. So finally, maybe I was 10 or 11, and I began to think, well, I could do something that would be cool and still exciting. So I thought, as I got a little older into my teenage years, that maybe I would just have to be one of these guys. Not the model, but I would have to go travel internationally, be a famous businessman of some sort, and, you know, be that guy. Carry the cool little bag, wear the cool suits, which every once in a while I wear a suit on Sunday. But that wasn't what I was thinking back then. And so I had all these ambitions, all these goals, and all these ideas of what I was going to be when I grew up. I even went off to university, and I went to it first to a wonderful Presbyterian college to study international business so I could be that guy. But God. 
God introduced me to this wonderful organization called English Language Institute China. And those wonderful people introduced me to a thing called Camp China, where I came to China for a summer, and I was infected. From then on, I knew I wanted to come back. And so after spending a summer here, I felt, well, I should study how to work in China and what it means to be a missionary. And so I transferred to a Bible college. I studied missions and teaching English. Uh, That I don't do much of anymore. And a long time later, here I am. Because my plans weren't God's plans. His plans were way better. And while there's been many times in my life I've questioned, God, do you know what you're doing? This doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I would much rather be him. This would be more fun. Or at least this guy, where if I fall, it's over and I'm with you anyway. But somewhere along the line, the Lord taught me one valuable lesson. I show you that picture because there's an amazing thing about a rock climber, a good one. They know how to trust their equipment. They know how to trust their fingertips. Their fingertips are stronger than most of our hands combined and most of our bodies combined. They also know how to trust that where they've put those hooks in the rock, that it's going to hold. And they've done it many times. They know where to put their trust. Today, I want us to look at that idea of ambition and trust. And I want us to search our hearts and ask, Lord, where am I placing my goal, my ambition in life? And in whom do I trust? And we're going to do so by working through the words of Scripture. The first thing Jesus teaches, and in some of your Bibles, they make a mistake, in my opinion. They divide these two sections. Notice we're covering a lot of verses in one go. Normally, we do just a few, and today we're covering uh, 16 verses, 15 verses. The reason is, is that this is one continuous thought, in my opinion, of what Jesus was saying. He doesn't talk about money and then skip and go to a different gear and pause for a while and say, okay, you got that, let's move on to food, clothes, and etc., It's one continuous thought about treasure. And so I want us to look at that in a holistic way of who do we want to be when we grow up? Knowing that our end goal, if we call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ, our end goal is maturity, growing up into him who is the head. Fancy way of saying be like Jesus. If that's our goal, then Jesus is going to point out, here's how you find the treasure. Here's how you go get it. Hopefully you received one of these fancy things today. I'm going to cover a lot of ground that Jesus covers. Actually, he's going to cover it and I'm just going to repeat it. But sometimes when I do this and I've got a lot of points, uh, I'm very aware that you could think and you could track with me and then you could go out and have lunch and forget everything I said. And so today I'd like to avoid that. Today, I'd like you to track with what Jesus said, not with Mike, what Mike said. You could forget that I ever wanted to be a rock climber or Donnie Baseball. But I would love for you to remember what Jesus says. And the first thing Jesus tells us is that he wants us to find our treasure. We go looking for treasure all over the place. Why do we like movies about hidden treasure so much? My kids love a TV show called Jake and the Neverland Pirates. If you are a parent, you have heard of that show. Well, if you've got the Disney Channel. If we're grown up, we've heard of people like Blackbeard or we've heard of uh, Captain Jack Sparrow. 
and the other guys in that movie whose names I can't remember, were all about these movies that are these lifelong quests for that one big treasure. Today, I want to invite you to find your treasure. Well, how do you do that? Well, first, you've got to examine what is our treasure. Because Jesus tells us, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Well, what's he mean by that? He means, take a look at yourself and think about what is truly important to you. And in so doing, look at what you crave. Look at what you long for. And in that moment of thinking about what you really want, you'll know what you treasure. For instance, if we think really hard, what's the the most important thing I want right now? Some of you might be hungry and you're thinking, nothing sounds better than me than a big juicy piece of steak or some wonderful chasu or anything in between. Maybe not. And that, that's your treasure right now. This is the fulfillment of your belly. Okay. Others of you are thinking, I just wish I could get out from under this debt that's been placed upon me by others. I just wish I could be free of this financial burden. And so your treasure has become about finance. Or some of you just wish you could get that promotion and you just wish so much that people would recognize all the hard work you put in and you deserve to be better treated. And while none of those things are good or bad, they are good, they can distract us from what's truly important. And we can begin to treasure those over God himself. And Jesus is very clear. And it's interesting that he starts here because he's going to come full circle by the time he gets to the end. But he starts with this. Where your treasure is, there your heart's going to be also. Is money inherently bad in and of itself? No. But you can't serve both God and money. If you're serving money, money has become your God. If you're serving God, money will become a tool by which you glorify God. Money isn't evil in and of itself. Our glorification of it, our pursuit of it over our pursuit of the glory of God is evil. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying it's not bad if God has given you wealth if you use it for his glory. We need wealthy people sold out for Jesus because they allow so much ministry to happen because they are generous and used mightily by God. And we need people with nothing using the gifts God has given them for his glory and allowing generous people of finance to help them be empowered to go where God has called them to do or called them to go. When I first felt called to go on that missions trip to China, I had no money. I had school debt. But a small group of people in my local church in the middle of Geneva, Ohio, of 6,000 people, took it upon themselves to raise all the money, about 50,000 Hong Kong dollars. And they raised it all. And at the end, then they said, we want you to go. We want you to serve God. And by the way, not only that, but we want you to take pictures while you're there. And they bought a camera just to throw in. They wanted to use the gifts the abilities and the resources God had given them to empower me to go where God was calling me to go. It's not that Jesus is saying money is bad. That's not it at all. 
He's saying, make sure your use and your pursuit of money is for the right reasons. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We could say the same about pursuing love. We've all been there at one point or another. We wish, well, maybe not all, but most of us at one point wish so much we could meet that right person, Mr. or Miss Wright. And we longed to meet them. And when we met them, everything in the world was just going to be so much better, right? And then you got married and a year in, you're thinking, huh? I wish I would have gone to some counseling for this because they're not at all like I expected them to be. And then over time, as you grow in Christ, you know what happens? You love them far more than you thought you ever could when you were dating because the Lord has joined you together and you continue to grow more in Christ as you grow together. That's why God says, don't be unequally yoked. And so what you long for is a relationship that is pleasing to God, not one that is in pursuit of what man wants, just a love that feels good because love, as the famous song says, is more than a feeling relationship for the glory of God that builds one another up. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And Jesus has always told us, for out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus is consistent in what he says. So we understand that we want to find our treasure, and our treasure is in the Lord. There is nothing in this world greater than than knowing Jesus Christ. Some of us might shake our heads, but I pray that at some point in time in our lives, we won't just hear those words. We will live them so that when Mike or whenever anybody says, there is nothing greater than knowing Jesus Christ our Lord, we will shout with joy an amen that says, yes, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. I want to know him. There's nothing more important than that. We seek to find our treasure. There's a guy, there's a legend told of St. Thomas. uh, And it's told of St. Thomas and Gondophorus. It's told by a lady named Mrs. Jameson. It's an old story, so the language is a little archaic. But listen carefully, and maybe you can get the picture of what Jesus was saying. The story is told that when St. Thomas was at Caesarea, our Lord appeared to him and said, the king of the Indies, Gandaphorus, has sent his provost, Abenes, to seek workmen that are well-versed in the science of architecture. We've got some architects in here who will build for him a palace finer than that of the emperor of Rome. So in other words, we're looking for architects that can build the greatest palace in all the world. That was the goal. Behold, now, Thomas is told, God is sending him to Gondophorus. And so Thomas went, and Gondophorus commanded him to build this magnificent palace. And he gave him a ton of gold and silver for the purpose. So basically, Thomas was given everything he would need to build just a miraculous and wonderful and amazing palace for the king. So he had all these resources at his disposal to do it right. And then the king went off into a distant country and was gone for two years. So he trusted Thomas with his wealth and he leaves and he goes off. St. Thomas, meanwhile, instead of building a palace, distributed all the treasures among the poor and the sick. 
Let me say that again. While the king was away, Thomas distributed all the treasures that were given to him to the poor and the sick and the needy. When the king returned, he was full of anger and wrath, and he commanded that Thomas be seized and thrown into prison. And he meditated, he planned for him a horrible death. In the meantime, the brother of the king died. And the king resolved to erect for him an amazing and magnificent tomb. He had these big plans for architecture. But the dead man, is how the story is told, after that he'd been dead for four days, suddenly arose, sat upright, and said to the king, The man who thou would torture is a servant of God. Behold, I have been in paradise, and the angels showed to me a wondrous palace of gold and silver and precious stones. And they said, This is the palace that Thomas, the architect, hath built for my brother, King Godophorus. And when the king heard these words, he ran to the prison and delivered the apostle. And Thomas said to him, Don't you know that those who would possess heavenly things have little care for the things of this earth? There are in heaven rich palaces without number, which were prepared from the beginning of the world for those who live through faith and charity. Thy riches, O king, may prepare the way for such a palace but they can't follow you there. St. Thomas got it. King Godophorus, I don't know if that's a true story. It's a legend, so likely there was some truth in it, and then over time it got embellished. But the point is ever clear. We can get so pent up on building our kingdom here that we miss the eternal, the kingdom perspective of God. And so Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then he shifts gears. Well, if that's not hard enough, remember, when a rich man came to Jesus, what did Jesus tell him to do? Sell all you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. In other words, whose are your possessions? Where does your allegiance lie? St. Thomas got that. King Godophorus seemingly learned that lesson the hard way. But then Jesus goes on to talk about something else we might deal with from time to time. Have any of you ever worried? Probably. Some of you may be worried right now. What am I going to eat? What am I, where am I going to sleep? What am I going to do for work? What is my family going to do? How are we going to get through this difficult time? These are all valid questions that we don't want to minimize. And Jesus didn't minimize them but he gave us clues on how to battle worry. And he starts by saying that essentially worry doesn't make any sense. We talk a lot about things called common sense. You know, just doing the right thing for the right reasons. That's just common sense. I read a joke this morning that said those people that need common sense the most usually don't have it. But in in reality, we all probably need it more than we let on at times. If common sense defined here by looking at what Jesus did would be right living by guided by a moral compass to make the right decisions. That's common sense. And Jesus is basically saying, worry doesn't make any sense. How does he say it? Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Again, This isn't Jesus saying you can't like good food or you can't wear clothes that make 
you enjoy wearing those clothes, whatever that may be. But we have to do it again in perspective. And think about it like this. Uh, uh, Another guy wrote a very interesting eulogy. And he says this. He says, today we mourn the passing of common sense, a beloved old friend who's been with us for many years. He will be remembered as having cultivated such valuable lessons as come in out of the rain. The early bird gets the worm. Life isn't always fair, and maybe it was my fault. Those are common sense principles. Common sense lived by a simple, sound financial policies. Don't spend more than you've earned. And reliable strategies. Adults, not children, are in charge. Common sense was preceded in death by his parents, truth and trust. By his wife, discretion. By his daughter, responsibility. And his son, reason. He survived by his stepbrothers that continue living. I know my rights. I want it now. Someone else is to blame. I'm a victim and pay for me for doing no- pay me for doing nothing. Not many attended his funeral because so few realized he was gone. Rest in peace. That's the world we've begun to live in. The world where I want my rights, pay me to do as little as humanly possible. Someone else is to blame. It's never possibly my fault. I'm a victim and I want it now. (laughs) And the, the little author here, Ray Semko is his name, says that we've lost the point of living with common sense. And Jesus says, worrying doesn't make any common sense. He says, what can you add to your life by worrying? Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life. That doesn't mean he's advocating the right to just sit back and do nothing. That's not at all what he's saying. If you've read the whole of scripture, you understand. Just read Proverbs. And time and again, the Proverbs tell us that God is with those that work hard. That the, the workman is expected to do his due work and be rewarded for that not just sit back and be lazy. In fact, God has tremendously hard things to say about those that are lazy. He expects us to take personal responsibility for our actions. But in so doing, we leave the results to the Lord. Does that make sense? If we want to live a life free from worry, it means we take responsibility for our lives. We say, God, my life is yours. I am going to work hard with what you've given me to accomplish. I'm going to do my best and I'm going to trust you with the results. It's easier said than done, Mike. You don't understand my situation. You're right. I don't. But I can give you some great ideas of how to battle worry and how to live a life that's been set free. And they're so simple. They're amazing. First, it's an issue of trust. Whom do you trust? I told you at our men's ministry, we talked about good relationships, about deep relationships among men. And one of the things that the men brought up that we need is to be able to trust one another. Well, in the same way, those of us that call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ, we would say, I love Jesus. We would even say, I want to follow him. I want to be his disciple. Great. But let me ask you a question. Do you trust him? Well, yeah, I trust him. Do you trust him with everything? Even your well-being in any of these areas, food, clothing, shelter, money. And then it gets a little tougher. Well, God needs my help to accomplish this according to his plans, right? No, he needs you to be obedient. 
Because he tells us, trust in the Lord. And you've hopefully heard this verse before. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In some of your ways, acknowledge him and he'll get it right. Right? No. In all your ways, in everything we do, acknowledge him. In other words, work is a holy venture. Work is a godly ambition. And we are called to do everything. Our conversations with one another in this room, our conversations with our co-workers, with our employers, we're called to do all of it in a way that acknowledges that God is Lord and King. And He will make your path straight. He'll guide you. You'll know which way to go. Some of you have been in situations where you've been asked to make morally questionable decisions. Some of you work for people that have less business ethics or morality than you do. And you've been, come, you've been brought to a position where you have to make a decision. Will I choose God's way or man's way? There's your answer. It's not easy. I understand that. It could cost you. But remember, we're not thinking in earthly perspective. We're thinking in eternal perspective. That whatever it might cost us now is of far greater value for eternity. It might be difficult for a little while, but there is nothing greater than pleasing our God and our King. And He is worthy of our trust. I used to lead groups of adults, of teenagers, of everybody on these trips where we would do team building exercises. And one of the simplest ones we would do is I would get two people, partners, to stand. And one of them would have to go like this and we'd put a blindfold on them. And the other one would have to just stand back somewhere behind them. And the one up in front that was blindfolded like this would have to just fall back and trust that the person behind them would catch them. It's kind of like faith. We don't always know. God doesn't always tell us this is going to, how this is going to work out. He invites us to live radically for him, to step out of the boat as Peter did and walk on water. Sometimes it's a radical choice of saying, I'm not going to live like that. God, you are my God and my King, and I'm following you. I'm going to let go of a relationship that's not holy. I'm going to let go of a practice that isn't right. And I'm going to follow you, and I'm going to trust that you will look after me. Well, if we are willing to take those steps of faith, if we're willing to acknowledge that worry doesn't make sense, how do I overcome my fear? How do I overcome my worry? Well, let's look at what... Jesus teaches us. Because worry, essentially, John Stock tells us, it's just a failure to trust God. The minute we allow worry and fear to infect us, we've said, God, I know more of what needs to go on than you do. I'm not going to trust you in this. I'm going to hang on to this tightly because I just don't know if you'll get me through it. I promise you, he'll get you through it. I will not promise you it will be easy. I will not promise you he'll make you rich. He will make you rich eternally. But that might mean some difficult times, some suffering here on earth. So how do we get by worry? How do we battle it? Well, Jesus gives us eight reasons not to worry. Eight reasons that his way is better than our way. And I'm just going to move through these very quickly because they're pretty commonsensical to me. First, life is more than food, the body more than clothes. 
Now, we live in Hong Kong, one of, in my opinion, the most fashionable places in the world and one of the best places to eat in the world because you can find food from anywhere here and get it. My favorite restaurant, or one of them, happens to be out on the backside of Lantau Island, and it's called The Stoop, and it's South African food. I didn't know they had their own food until I went there. And they've got these things called fried cheese sticks, and they are heavenly. But my life is more than the great food and scenery I get out at the stoop. My life is more than whatever clothes I happen to wear. And I'll show you. I wear the most important shoes I've ever put on. You you see these? Some of you know this story. These shoes, since I still haven't replaced my wedding ring, are a reminder I'm married. Why? Because when Melissa and I got married, we each have a pair of these shoes and we both wore them. These are our wedding shoes. But my marriage is more than just a pair of super cool Doc Martens. My marriage is about a covenant between God and us. It's way more than a pair of shoes or the lost wedding ring. Someday I will replace that ring. Life is more than food. It's more, the body is more than your clothes. What people say about your clothes doesn't matter. What God says about you matters. So why worry? Look nice. Do it. Great. God made you beautiful or handsome. Look it. But make sure you're not getting so caught up in wearing, I'm not even going to guess names of famous designers. So don't get so caught up in that that you miss the point. That's the first thing he says. The second thing is you are valuable. You are more valuable than the birds God feeds. This teaches us two things about God. First, it teaches us that God is sovereign. God is in control. It is God that is feeding the birds and the animals of this world. Okay? He's in control. He's got a plan. And Jesus, the Son of God, teaches us right here that you are of more valuable than those animals with, which with God feeds every single day. Your life has value to God. To put it simply, you matter to God. Sometimes we can feel insignificant if we're not successful, if we've done something wrong, if we've missed, if we're in a world of hurt and we can't get out. We feel like, how could I ever be of value to God? And all he says is, remember, I've got you. Yes, you might have dug a hole, but I am with you. And we will walk through this together if you will but follow and honor and obey me. Third, Worry, just like I talked about common sense, worry doesn't accomplish anything. He says that so clearly in verse 27. There's just no point in worry. Do any of you feel better after you're done worrying? No, the only time you feel better about worrying is when you've stopped it and put it away and realized that it was a worthless pursuit. Here's what worry does for you. Worry causes ulcers. Worry affects your sleep. Worry affects your health. Worry causes you to have attitudes toward other people that are not beneficial or holy or particularly helpful. In other words, you're crabby. We, in our house, we go like this, like little crabs. We get short with each other. We get argumentative. That's what happens when worry comes in. What happens when you're full of joy? Which to me would be the opposite of worry. People want to be around you. When you're worried all the time, who wants to be around you? Not me. Go worry somewhere else, please. If you need to talk about it, we'll talk. But I don't want to 
hear everybody being worried all the time. I want to hear people say, I trusted God and I testify to how he's delivered me. I don't understand all his ways, but he's amazing. I pray that we could all tell those stories because worry itself, Jesus teaches us, it accomplishes nothing. Then, do you remember this? The grass, the lilies, they go away. Here tomorrow, but they're sure not here to stay. You, however, are eternal. God made you to be with him for all eternity. We have to believe in Jesus Christ. We follow him. And so the worries of this day and age are temporary. It is so hard for me to remember that at times. As I think about all the cares of this world in my own life, I got to remember that I got to think kingdom, eternal perspective, not just the right now. We get so worked up in the right now that we forget we're living to build God's kingdom, not man's. And God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. He who has Jesus has life. Let's look at number five. When we worry we tip our hats as to where our treasure is. When we worry, we let the world know our treasure is earthbound. We let the world know we can't trust God enough to take care of us. So here's the sad reality of what worry does to our testimony. Worry tells other people that we don't trust God enough to help us through these difficult times. So why should you? It's a reality we don't like to look at all the time. But if we get consumed by worry, what we're telling the world is that God isn't trustworthy. Ladies and gentlemen, God is trustworthy. We may not be, but he always is. Don't let our treasure become earthbound. Let our treasure become God Almighty. Then Jesus tells us in verse 32, the second part of it, he says, Our heavenly Father knows what we need. Just listen to those words again. Pagans, Gentiles, whatever your version says, run after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. God doesn't look down at you with a disinterested glance. He knows what you need more than you do. You know what you want. I know what I want. I could give you a long list right now of what I want but my God shall supply all my needs, get this, according to his glorious riches, his kingdom wealth. The guy is richer than Solomon, richer than anyone that has ever lived. He who clothes the lilies of the valley and the birds of the air, he is the one that knows what I need and he'll take care of me. It may not be according to my plans. In fact, it often isn't. But he keeps reminding me. See, this is a lesson. You guys are just listening in. I just have to learn this. He keeps reminding me that his ways are better than my ways. And see, I feel like I'm a pretty good planner. I feel like I've got a plan and I've drawn it out and I've tried to communicate things. And so why doesn't it happen the way I expect it to? (laughs) Because God's ways are better. And he knows what I really need. And he knows what I really need in, other, in order to do his will. 
Paul tells us in Ephesians that God will equip us to do the work of the saints. The church's job is to equip the saints. That's you. That's me for works of service. And here in verse 33, Jesus tells us that God will supply all we need to do his will and his righteousness. And we're going to talk about those two words in a minute. But here's the thing. God doesn't throw you out there and tell you, go be light in this dark world with nothing. He gives you all you need to proclaim him to be light in this dark world. You got to do your part. You got to study your word. You've got to engage in relationships with one another that are glorifying and honor to him. And you've got to keep growing. But you've got to let the Holy Spirit be your teacher, not just man. And my God will supply all we need to do his will according to his righteousness. And finally, just in case that wasn't enough, (laughs) and this is the great one for me, God won't overload us. (laughs) I put in parentheses, though it might feel this way. Verse 34 says this, therefore, don't worry about tomorrow for tomorrow has enough. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Notice Jesus doesn't say, you're not going to have any trouble. You follow me, it's going to be easy. He never says that. He says it's going to be better. He says it's the path to true life. He says it's the only way to eternity is through him. He says all these things, but he never promises it's going to be easy. In fact, he says you're probably going to suffer because people aren't going to understand why you think God is more important than money, than retirement, than a good relationship that's based on the feeling of love, than all these things. He says there is nothing greater than the glory of God, our great and mighty King. And so... When Jesus tells us that he's not going to overload us, he doesn't promise that it's going to be simple. He promises that he's going to lead us down the right path and invite us to follow him. And in so doing, we can have confidence in him that he'll make our path straight, that he'll get us where we need to go. I promise you, he will. I might give you bad advice. The minute I stray from this book and start giving you advice off the top of my head, There's a good chance that's bad advice. Don't listen to it. Now, maybe it's good advice and prayerfully consider it if if I'm truly trying to give you good advice. But the greatest advice in all the world is right here. Nine times out of 10, we don't need to go beyond this. Sometimes we need somebody to smack us in the face and tell us to go back to his word, to remind us of what he's teaching us. But we need to follow the words of scripture knowing that he's not going to overload us no matter how heavy it feels. We're even going to be tempted. We talked about these ideas of decisions that our employers or our friends might try to get us to make. Well, Jesus taught taught us that we can always follow him, that he'll never leave us nor forsake us. And then Paul teaches us that no temptation has overcome us except what's common to man. In other words, I know it's really easy for you and I to feel like nobody gets the problems we have. Teenagers are great at that. You don't understand me, mom and dad. How could you possibly know what I'm going through? Right? We've heard it. We've said it. We were teenagers once. Don't think that your kids are the only ones saying this. But the bottom line is when we're tempted, we're not the only ones going through that. Other people have been tempted before us. Other people will be tempted after us. And other people are being tempted with similar things right now. And even in that... 
There's been no temptation that will overcome us except that's which is common to man. In other words, you're not alone in this. Even Jesus understands what you're going through. But, love the buts in the Bible. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted. He will not give you more than you can bear. And when it feels like it, he'll provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Now, I've got to be honest with you. There have been times in my life where I've prayed to God to deliver me and he hasn't seemingly delivered me or those that I'm praying for in the timing that I saw fit. But as I can look back, I can see how his plan was honored and how God was glorified in letting difficulties stretch beyond what I thought was fair or right. I'm not sitting here telling you it's going to be easy. I'm sitting here saying, Jesus teaches us that he's all we need and that if we seek his glory and we follow him, we need not worry about anything in this world because his way is better and there's nothing else more significant than that. But he doesn't stop there. He reminds us to invest in the right person. We're in a city that is consumed by all things money. We love money here. Every morning, if you listen to the one English radio station on the AM dial, you hear of money matters and they devote now a full hour every morning to talking about money in Hong Kong. It's an interesting show. I learn a lot. But money is not the end all, save all. Jesus teaches us about true investment. Some of you know far more about investments than I do. Uh, I'm pretty worthless when it comes to those. So don't ask me for an investment advice because the only good advice I've got with investment is right there. Invest in the right person. Don't go looking for the right stock until you've invested in the right person. God. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all of this, all these things you're already worried about, they'll be given to you as well. Don't worry. Bobby McFerrin said it so well, the great philosopher that he was back in the 80s. Don't worry, be happy. Let me say it again. Don't worry, be happy. Maybe I would flip that to don't worry, be content, because God will supply all your needs according to his glorious riches. But here we're told to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Huh? Well, think of it like this. Think of the kingdom as the eternal rule and authority of God, okay? Both now and forever. And righteousness is the way we are to live while we're here on earth and the way we will be living for all eternity. So the kingdom that we are seeking, the kingdom of God, is we are seeking to give this world an eternal perspective that says the world is more than what you're worried about right now. And the righteousness is there is a better way to live. What's that look like? Well, I came across a video a couple days ago that I thought, you know, these guys, I don't know if they're Christians or not, but they're on to something when it looks at this idea of kingdom perspective and righteous living. So let's watch. Ich würde mir gerne mal deinen Eimer leihen, wäre das möglich? Mein Eimer? 
ja, ein bisschen drauf spielen. Spielen mit meinem Eimer. Ein bisschen Musik machen. Cool, danke. Ja? Probieren wir noch mal was anderes. Some usual day, everything seems okay. Lights in the murk are perfect for work. Your headphones are like a shield to the silence. But what would be if you were taking a look? Oh, another chance to change is gone. There will be new ones, but first you have to find them. This is the day you shall look away from the wings of humanity today. Is life, 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 life is too short to wait a chance. Every evening you're watching TV, there's another misery. Only pictures and numbers you see, if you don't mind. And every day, close your eyes and go to bed. What would be if you were taking it away? Oh, another chance to change the song. There will be new ones, but first you have to find them. This is the day, don't look away from the wings of humanity today. Cause it's life, 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 life is too short to wait a chance. Danke für den Eimer. Schönen Tag dir noch. I can't tell you the story of those three German university students beyond their German university students. But they, somewhere along the line, learned something that we can all learn from. And if you listen to the, carefully to the words they sang, first, basically, they intimated that we can get so caught up with our headphones on that the world is silent around us. They sang that at the beginning. And I am so guilty of that. I look in, out in the, the congregation today as somebody I, I nearly walked right by at the Shatin Mall on Thursday or Friday. And she saw me and, and I had my headphones on just listening to probably some Dave Matthews band likely. And I saw her and I was, oh, wait. And then I had to pull it out and then have time to have a conversation. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with headphones. 
but we can get so wrapped up in our own thoughts, so occupied in our own worry that we miss the chance to make a difference today. Because kingdom perspective, eternal perspective, seeking first the kingdom of God is remembering that this world is only the beginning on our path toward an eternity with God. We don't get so caught up thinking about right now that we miss that some people don't yet know that. Seeking first his kingdom and all his righteousness means that not only do we live free of worry, but we invite others to learn how to do the same. The fancy, trendy word for that now is called missional living. In other words, we follow the mission of God. God invited us to care for the poor, the weak, the needy. He invited us to be like those university students that said, hey, we've got some skills. Let's go use these to make a homeless guy's day and hopefully help buy him a meal. I'm I'm reading into that a little bit, but notice that he left the hat there and put another hat on, seemingly going to do it again somewhere else. Shouldn't we do the same? Shouldn't we look for ways to use the abilities, the resources, and the gifts that God has given us to bring glory to him? Because when we get focused on him and honoring his great name, it's really hard to worry. And as we focus on his great name, as we seek to exalt him, as our soul cries out, I want you to listen to the words of Psalm 42 that say this. As the deer pants for streams of water, my soul pants, or some versions say longs for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with you? He's already with us. We can turn to him and invite others to come on with us. Lord, today, may we seek you first. May we seek your kingdom. May we live righteously, empowered by your son. And may the world see us freely living, free of worry, free of doubt, and coming to a place where they say, I want what you, our Lord and King, have given us, life. In your name I pray, amen.